How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And you know what we're going to do this week? We did the piece last week, the chat that John and I had about millennials and the fact that people in their now 30s are being locked out of the housing market. People in their 20s have no hope of it. And what you find is the reaction was lots of people said, yeah, Dave, do you think it's people in their 30s? I'm in my 40s yeah. and I'm locked yeah, out, yeah, right? Yeah. So I've heard a lot of that this Yeah, we're talking well, yeah. a huge, huge, significant generation. And I was actually reading an amazing expression. I wish I'd come up myself. An inherentocracy, Ooh. right? right? Inheritance, right? Yes. An inherentocracy is a system which is designed for those who inherit property, right? right. It was, an, it was, a, it was a, a headline thing at the FT this weekend, right? right? And that's what's happening. We are creating not a democracy, right, but mm. an inherentocracy where people who inherit, so basically rich kids, yeah. right, are getting such a leg up. If you talk to anyone now, what they'll say is that I went to an auction to buy a place we were the underbidder in six or seven places. And the dilemma for us and our face drops when what you get is your 30-something and a 60-something turns up at the at the viewing. And you know that's the dad or the parents who are going to give that kid the inheritance yeah. and are going to elbow you out. So unless you have parents who are already on the property market and those parents can actually either release equity yeah, yeah, right, yeah. or give you money, what you're going to find is people without wealthy parents are going to be elbowed out of the market. So this is the inherentocracy, which is basically, yeah. it's, it's, it's a system that is in effect feudal, right? It's actually feudal, because that's what a feudal system was. Yeah, like, yeah, of course. You yeah, know, like yeah. the freaking Prince Harry of this world gets all the goodies, right? Yeah. it, right? Okay. And he even called himself a spare, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't me who called him a spare. He called himself a spare, right? But that sort of idea. So... All the gains of democracy and equality and civil rights and all these things that we've done 
are going to come cropper because we can't fix the housing market. Yeah. So you can't have a democracy, which is one man, one vote, as we said the other day, and an inherentocracy, which is basically rich kids more votes than anybody else. Now, there's always going to be rich kids more votes. Yeah, of course, yeah. But in the housing market, it's so explicit now. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. Not the inherentocracy, but how do you fix that? And it's going to be demanding something, John, called cathedral thinking, which I'll tell you about in a sec. Is that religious, Mac? It's spiritual, John. Spiritual. John, you recorded a an album by, a, I think, a band called The Spiritual Cowboys. I did indeed. Well, there yes. you go. This is all about the spiritual cowboys. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mac, last week... We did a whole piece on millennials and how they're shafted. Yes. And it struck a chord with an awful lot of people, right? Yeah, so. so this week, we want to kind of expand on that. Yes, yeah, kind of similar theme. It's yeah. how, how do you live in these sort of things? I think we're going to start somewhere, okay? Mm-hmm. Notre Dame Cathedral. In yes, one of my favourite buildings in the world. Oh, there you go, right? So yeah. imagine the... Heartbreaking pop- when it went up in flames. Yeah, but I think they've fixed it, haven't they? Yeah, I know, but they've lost so much of it. But anyway. But, yeah. but think about Notre Dame, right? Think about cathedrals, right? When you're looking at economic history, right? And when you go back to the pre-record era, okay? Mm. Where records and writing was not very popular. Pre-printing. Yeah. So you've got to think, how do these people live? And one of the things is that architecture, if you're not an economic historian, architecture tells you a lot. So what actually is the legacy of these civilizations? So if you look at these cathedrals that were built around the 11th century, mm. the big, basically the millennial, the first millennium, to speak with our millennials, right? Yeah. The first millennium is this huge outpouring in Europe of religious fervor and all sorts of weird stuff, right? It's kind of Y2K meets the Vatican, right? <laughs> that idea, right? And they started building. Why 1K? Why 1K, exactly. Why <laughs> 1K, right? And what you see is these enormous cathedrals, Cologne Cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral in the UK, mm. 
even in Ireland, you see Clonmacnoise, all these sort of cathedrals yeah, being built yeah. around the same time, and the big one being Notre Dame, right? But these cathedrals took about 200 years to build. Mm. So the people who built the cathedral knew that it wouldn't be finished until after they were dead. Yeah. So think about that legacy mindset. Think about you're actually building something for a generation that is yet to be born. Now, this is something that because of religious fervor and they were giving up to God and all that, these people dealt with. But it means that the architects of these cathedrals, the people who commissioned them, not just the bricklayers and the laborers, mm. but the people who actually commissioned them knew that they were building something that they would never benefit from. Yes. But the future yeah. generations. So this is this idea of cathedral thinking. The idea of how do we build today for people who are yet to be born? Yeah. Right? This is the whole idea of planning. And this struck me when we were doing the podcast last week, that this was a very interesting area to get into. Because basically what happens is in a situation, when we talk about private sector and democracy, yeah. Like, yeah. But basically in a situation, the private sector, private people will always look after themselves. Mm. right, as a general rule. Somebody has to look after the public, the wealth of the public, and that takes visionaries and people who can actually see beyond their own immediate concerns, but much more interestingly, see beyond their own generation, even beyond their own children. Yeah. And I was walking on O'Connell Street while I was musing this the yes. other day, and I looked up at a statue of a man called John Gray. Do you know who he is? No. Right, you know the statue? No. Right. I don't even know where it is. Right, but... okay. It's on, it's on O'Connell Street, just beside yeah. Abbey Street, right? And so everybody okay. knows about Daniel O'Connell. Yes. Everybody knows about Jim Larkin, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and even Nelson's column, even which is blown up column. in 1966. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got Parnell on the far side. You have a Catholic guy, Father Matthew, who was an a teetotaler. He was an anti-alcoholic campaigner. Oh, Jesus. These are the sort of characters. There. There's yeah. a fellow called John Gray. Who is he? Everyone knows about Jim Larkin. John Gray did more for the working people of Dublin than Jim Larkin ever did in all his life. How right? so? So John Gray was a politician. Mm. He was a Protestant nationalist in the 1860s, 1870s. He was a surgeon. He was the chief surgeon of Ireland. Yeah. He was also the man who owned the farmer, the Freeman's Journal, which was the big nationalist paper in the Victorian these, age. You know, these guys, you they're, know, they, they, guys. they're not just, they don't just do one thing like I'm a doctor and just get on and do your doctor stuff. They're politicians, they own journalists. Newspapers, they're, they're really interesting geezer, right? So John Gray, nobody knows about guys, him. Right. Nobody in Ireland has ever forgotten about him. Yeah. But his most extraordinary thing was, he was a surgeon and then he was the chief bottle washer of all surgeons, right? The head of the medical council. Would oh, that as well? Yeah, he would in fact be the, the, the Tony Houlihan of the Victorian <laughs> age, right? And he said to himself, he said to himself, look, the problem with Dublin is we have these recurring outbreaks of cholera and typhus. Yes. Because the water is contaminated. Now imagine Dublin in the 1850s would have had a surge of migration of famine victims from yes, Munster course, yeah, and yeah. Connacht, right, from the West Coast, right? So the population expanded hugely, right? And they all come into the slums, all these people, they've no money, right? And suddenly you, the slums are, 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 are overcrowded and you have these outbreaks of cholera and typhus. Yeah. Why? Because the water of Dublin was completely polluted. Now, at the same time in London, for our English audience, there's a geezer called Joseph Baselgett, Yes. And Joseph Basilgate is the chief engineer of London. In 1857, around the same time, London had this thing called the Big Stink, which was basically that the 
the River Thames was just an open sewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. just a sewer, yeah. right? And of course, because London is very far from the sea, right, basically there is no tidal impact on London because it's so far away. So basically the, the shite just went up yeah. and down, up and down at high tide and low tide, but there was no flushing mechanism. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Baselgate built the London sewers, which are a phenomenal, phenomenal undertaking of engineering, Okay. And he, what he did was he built them for a city, London was 3 million at the time. Mm. He built them for a city of 4.5 million. So yeah. he, he over-engineered. Right, okay. Gray at the same time in Ireland says, hold on a second, what we need to do is we need to over-engineer a new water system. Because if we can get clean water into Dublin, it'll save lives. Because they, they were getting the water from the canals They were getting something. from the canals, right? And the canals, the canals were run by private sector companies. Right. And the canals charged Dublin Corporation, the municipal council, for the pleasure of giving Dubliners shitty drinking water, in effect. Yeah, yeah, because it would have been full of, you know, rat piss and, rat piss and, and, and vile's disease everything. and all that. And that's what's killing the kids. Yeah, yeah, of so course. So Gray said, hold on a second. I am going to oversee the creation of an entirely new clean water system for mm. Dublin. And you know the, the Vartry Yes, I do, yeah, I right? know well, yeah, yeah. He, Gray, amazing guy, Gray undertook and built an entire sanitation system based on that massive reservoir, which he built. Right. Which is 500 feet above Dublin's sea level, right? And he built, well, the the engineers at the time, built this enormous pipe, which we still use today, that goes from the reservoir to Stilorgan, and from Stilorgan goes to the mains. So John Gray, the man who everyone forgot, whose statue is in O'Connell Street, which I was walking by the other day, considering this podcast, right? He created the best sewage and freshwater system in Europe for Dublin and eliminated typhus and cholera from the city, which had been killing thousands of children, thousands and thousands of Dublin children, right? And of course, for our purposes, what it shows is that if you have the vision, Grey in Dublin, Baselgate in England, right, in London, to... Think beyond yourself. Think beyond, right? That you're over-engineering. What we need now is over-engineering of all our dilemmas. Because what we have in Ireland and in the UK and in Canada and in the United States, all countries have a problem of how do you think long-term, like Gray and Baselgate, in an endemically short-term society? You know, think about our societies. Yeah. It's TikTok and Twitter. It's all short-term hits. Yeah, yeah. And but, short-term but even this the political cycle is, is and just... And this is back to your point about Pascal Donoghue. Yes. You know, it's all short-term, short-term. How do I get over this? How, do I, how can you run a country like Grey, required we run Ireland, if you're constantly fighting the noise of the everyday and the minute-by-minute Absolutely. demands of the yeah. short-term? So the podcast is thinking long-term, John, in a short-term world. And it's a eulogy to John Gray, the forgotten man in Irish economic history. That's fantastic. And you know what's interesting as well is that Stilorgan Reservoir that you, you spoke about is about 500 yards from my Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And they've just completed a big project there where they were covering it. It took a few years to do. Yeah. It's fantastic. But they're updating, because the last time it was touched, was John Gray, clearly. That's amazing. And they're going to put a park on top of it. Yes. Now, yeah, inter- yeah. one last little interesting fact, again, for London listeners. You know, in London, you have the embankment, Banking Tube Station, the mm. Victoria Embankment, all those embankments, they were built by Baselgate. 
So he built the sewers running parallel with the with the Thames, with the river. Yeah. Right? Because you need the river to flush out the whole thing. Yeah. But so the legacy of the sewers is not just that London had an incredibly clean sewage system, right? And system of sewers. But they also had the embankments, which yeah. were public amenities. And they actually built up around the Thames and then you could walk on them. So the, the thing in Stroke is a small version. It's yeah. like, you know, the... You know, it's a bit like Ireland's Canary Wharf, you know, down the Docklands, yeah. Canary Dwarf. <laughs> it's like a small version of the English thing. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so it's this thinking that we need. This to cathedral do. thinking. Yes. So, yeah. okay, so that's the water system. So to bring it up to date, the big issue at the moment for us and for the millennials and for all the generations to come is housing. Exactly. And the Housing Commission, we're talking about needing to... Double, because we were talking before about the thirty to 40,000 new homes need to be built every year. But now the new Housing Commission are saying that it's more like sixty to 65,000. 60, uh, yeah, so actually... Between think, now I, and I, I 2050. John, if we go back to the archive of this podcast, we were talking about 50,000 houses need to be built about a year ago. Looking actually, at, do you know what? That is true. Yeah. And the reason is that the, that the Housing Commission obviously did the same sort of sums that we did, right? Yeah. Except they get paid a lot to do it. And we just do it when we're mooching around on Leary. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, there's always, when you're when you're looking at population, there's, there's a base forecast, mm. there's an under forecast, and there's a top line forecast. So what they're looking at is if migration continues as it is, right? So in the government's statistics up until now, they assumed that there would be migration of... 18,000 new immigrants per year. Yeah. Migration is now running at well above 35,000. That's before you talk about the 70,000 Ukrainians who turned up, okay. right? So you have, that figure has increased. This is the new Housing Commission. Second one is the natural rate of Irish people having kids is actually not falling as quickly as they thought it was. So right. Irish people are having children, mm. right? And we're more than replacing ourselves, Okay. Also, it's the way in which now people are living. So people are getting divorced more. And what divorces means, that you obviously have to have two houses where there used yeah. to be one house, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Number one, number two, people are separating. Also, lots and lots of Irish houses are amazing. It's a legacy of our large families that we don't have enough one-bedroom apartments and we've lots and lots of four-bedroom houses, mm. right? So as Irish people begin to demand new forms of living, the amount of homes has to increase dramatically. So there's lots and lots of things. So what they're saying is the trends that we're seeing now all suggest that the upper limit is what we're going to have to build. And that's about 60,000 per year. So that's double what we're doing at the moment. And what we're doing at the moment is 45% more than what we did two years ago. Right, right? yeah, yeah. But it's almost inconceivable under present planning that this comes back to our cathedral thinking. Yeah that we will be able to build that much. Why? Because in order to build that much, you need to look density. You need to build yeah. more dense. And then there's two sort of major views in Irish planning, okay? But not just Irish planning, London planning, New York planning, every yeah. major yeah. city has the same thing. You look at, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Toronto, all these major cities have the same dilemma, which is that, there is a bunch of people who are very influential, who I would call nostalgics, right? Mm -hmm. Who really want things to remain just as they are, okay? And then you have these modernists who really want to build as quick as possible. And both of these things are at odds with each other. 
And the nostalgics, you remember we talked about Jane Jacobs? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the nostalgics- She's the, the 15 Minute City. She period. was the original thinker. She didn't come up with this. 15 Minute City is a guy called Moreno, who's- uh, Oh, I um, see, sorry. I think he's a Mexican. Yeah. Uh, but he advises Anne Hidalgo, who was the Parisian mayor. Gotcha, yeah. But Jane Jacobs was this fascinating, self-taught, urban planner, urban thinker. Her most famous book was The Death and Rise of Great American Cities, which was a reaction to an ongoing battle that she had with a guy called Robert Moses. Robert Moses was the chief town planner of New York City and was the sort of 1950s town planner of America. And Robert Moses believed that cities revolved around cars. Mm. And that the way in which you made cities vibrant or the way in which cities would be in the future would be you would clear all the slums, you would have massive, sterile, high-rise blocks in which people would live, and you would surround those by motorways. So yeah. in effect, like, but say, that was the kind of common view of the day. You know, cars were kind of new and cars know, were the future, yeah. 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 And there was and, a guy called Le Corbusier, was a French architect, yeah. an urban planner who believed in putting people in these monstrous, really kind of, you know that great architectural expression, brutalism, Yeah, which I love. I want to live in a brutalist loft when I get older. (laughs) Just something brutal about it. Not some sort of nice little terraced house in Dunleary, but a brutalist loft. Anyway, so Jane Jacobs decided as a resident of Greenwich Village. So our friend Robert Moses wanted to run a massive, can imagine New York City? Mm. They wanted to run a massive motorway down Fifth Avenue, bulldoze through Washington Square, oh, Jesus. Bulldoze, bulldoze 50 blocks, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And come out the far side at almost the Staten Island Ferry, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, that was his obsession. And Jane Jacobs said, no, we can't be doing this. And her idea was that, and this is really important, is that really proper neighborhoods need to be diverse, right? Diversity in architecture, diversity in use, so commercial and residential, diversity in race, there needs to be black and white people living, diversity in income, there needs to be rich and poor living. So her idea was that she called it the elegant ballet of the street, John, Mm. which I think is a lovely expression, Mm -hmm. that she said that basically a living street, comes back to our idea of evolution and organisms and living, a living street needs to have all sorts of people coming and going at all times of the day. It can't be you know, buzzing at lunchtime and then empty in the evening. It has to be like a living organism. Yeah. And the way in which you do that is you create diversity. And the way in which you do that is you create density, but on a manageable scale. So Moses's idea was we build big tower blocks, right? And we put lots and lots of people in them. And the higher we go, the better. Mm. And Jane Jacobs was like, no, the most important thing is the streetscape the first, second, third floors. That's where people mingle. Because if you put people in massive vertical skyscrapers, in effect, yeah. they won't mix. Yeah, they will yeah. become they're, completely they're atomized. Yeah, completely yeah. atomized, right? And this goes to the core of the argument now in Ireland and all over Europe and the West. How do we build? The Jane Jacobs idea is you build based on diversity and this organism. But it sounds great. But the downside is that it puts a limit on density. Yeah. Right? And the modernists are saying, look, if you limit density and if you become victim to the tyranny of nostalgia, only rich people will be able to live in these areas yep. because you won't be building enough houses. Yeah, yeah. So it's this constant battle between the two 
all the time pushing, that's going on. You're forced to push out into greenfield sites. Greenfield sites, greenfield sites. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the climatic issue, yeah. right? Yeah. If you push people into greenfield sites, you're going to have more cars, right? Because what happens is urban transport is highly efficient at high densities. So mm. I'll give you a statistic, right? In Ireland, in Dublin, there's about 4,900 people per square kilometre, right? Right. In Paris, it's 50,000. Wow. In, yeah. In Barcelona, it's 27,000. In London, it's 28,000. So we are the least, the most dense. That's incredible, actually. <laughs> Ireland is completely, yeah. yeah. So, so in actual fact, I remember, obviously, I was in yeah. Kiev the other day, and I was asked to bring back a whole bunch of paints for somebody's wife who is a refugee here, and she's a painter. Not paints, uh, brushes. Oh, right, these, okay, these, yeah. these, these Ukrainian brushes. So I met her last Sunday and gave her, I'd never met her before, and I, I just, you know, met her and gave her the brushes, and she yeah. was delighted with this. But I was asking what her impressions of Ireland was, and she said, yeah, it was very strange when we first came from Kiev. I kept asking people, where's the city? Because <laughs> she was saying, like, it's, yeah. it's like a village. Like, it's, it, there's, there's no core, there's no dense core to yeah. Dublin. Like, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. spread out. It's like a Bantu township. But that's what's kind of nice about it as well. That's what's kind of nice about it. But, but if, you want, if you want... Yeah to create the type of density that is necessary to bring down house prices, you need to create something. You might not necessarily on the Parisian model, which is highly dense, but on the Barcelona model or the Amsterdam. And that would mean five or six times more people living per square kilometre than is the case right now. Right? So we, we need vision then. We so what s- we need to come back is this idea of somebody like Gray. Yes. Now, the reason you mentioned the canals is interesting. The canals were the vested interests of the time. He had to face them down. He also did something amazing, which is the following. He bought up all the land around the reservoirs, right? Yeah. And around where the mains water came out. Bought it for the state so that it wouldn't be bought by speculators who would hoard the land knowing that the new water system would increase the value of the land around the new course, price. Yeah, Isn't that yeah, amazing? Yeah, yeah. But he was, he was thinking miles ahead. He was yeah. buying the stuff, right? So he was raising the money from the government, buying it for the corporation, right? Yeah. And then freezing out speculators. So what you need is you need somebody like this. Because if we want to get to those levels of density, if we want to achieve climate change targets, if we want to achieve transport targets, and it's like everything, you know, the denser the community the more efficient public services. So if you course, put a yeah. hospital in a highly densely populated area, the margins, the economies of scale will be dramatic. Mm. If you put a hospital in the middle of nowhere, nobody's going to go to it. Yeah. So it's a big white elephant. If you put a school, you know, so what you think is that the more dense the population, the greater the return on investment, the greater the re- return on equity. And interestingly, the greater amount of people benefit. So at the, at the source of all this is democracy. Yeah. Right? You have to go dense. But the question then is, if you're purist in your Jane Jacobs approach, right, and you're basically saying that your model of the world is, you know, Greenwich Village in 1972, well, that's basically saying that everybody who lives, and this goes back to our grey idea, everybody who lives in an area has a greater right to have a say in the future of the area than those people who might in the future live there. Yeah. So it's this intergenerational problem that at the moment, with planning and all that sort of things, people who are in situ, whether in New York, Washington, Toronto, London or here, have a greater say in the future. 
than the people who might live there in the future. Yeah. Right? So basically, we have to invert that, which means that we, i.e. people like you and I who live already in Dunleary or yeah. Mr. Lorgan, are our equivalent in, in, in London or whatever, we need to accept that our rights and the rights of people we don't even know or who maybe even yet to be born, our rights are not greater than theirs. And that's a very hard idea to Incredibly get your head hard. around. Yeah. Because it means that local government, political... Like, so, for example, got a little flyer through the letterbox yeah. complaining about there's going to be a development up the road, I can't, about a mile away. Yeah. And suddenly the people who were against this have said that it is going to be on a Victorian garden built with some mature trees on it, right? right? And save the Victorian gardens. Now, amazingly, right, although they aren't named on this, this comes from the people before profit, the Marxist crowd, right? So rather right. than... So rather than worry about the rights, the obligations, the responsibilities and the future life of people. They are worrying about gardens that were built by imperialists in the 19th century, <laughs> whose explicit role was to subjugate the Irish working class. Yeah. These are the madness, right? But if you come back to the big idea, right, is that if the local system of government is gummed up because of the rights of the existing residents over the rights of the would-be residents, it requires a visionary like a grey to come in yeah. and face those things down and explain to people that what we are building here is the city of the future. Not for today's citizens, but for citizens who are yet to be born. Now, that's a very difficult concept to get your head around, but if we don't do this... House prices are going to continue to rise. Millennials are going to have nowhere to live. And the pendulum politically will swing rapidly to either the extreme left or the extreme right when the solution is right in front of our nose.